Welcome to Park Ave Baptist Church Podcast. A weekly broadcast of our Sunday sermon. I'm Himra Chanel, pastor of community engagement and stewardship. And I'm Darcy Jarrett, pastor of worship, advocacy, and arts. Park Ave is a bold, inclusive, and creative community where everyone is welcome. We uplift voices and identities that are marginalized elsewhere. We affirm all ethnicities, racial identities, ages, socioeconomic groups, gender identities, and sexual orientations because we hold to a theology that refuses to other anyone. At Park Ave, our leadership model is non-hierarchical. And we practice an open pulpit where you will hear a multiplicity of theologically trained voices from different backgrounds and social locations. We don't just preach and talk about deconstructing systems and structures of power. We We practice practice it. Through this podcast, we hope you will be inspired, encouraged, and challenged. Listen Listen with with us now. Park Avenue Baptist Church, in response to COVID-19, has suspended in-person worship, but that can't stop us. What you'll hear on this podcast is a recording of our online worship, which happens each Sunday at 10 a.m. Join us through our Facebook, at Park Ave Baptist, or our Instagram, at Park Ave Baptist. We hope that you stay safe in these difficult times. Here now, a reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 13. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like someone who planted seeds in their field. While people were sleeping, an enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat and went away. When the stalks sprouted, then the weeds became apparent. The workers came and said to the landowner, didn't you plant seeds in your field? Where did these weeds come from? An enemy has done this, they answered. The worker said, do you want us to go and gather the weeds? The landowner said, no, because if you gather the weeds, you will pull up the wheat along with them. Let both grow side by side until the harvest. Then we will gather the weeds and tie them together in bundles to be burned. We will bring the wheat into my barn. Jesus left the crowds and went into the house. The disciples came and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the fields. Jesus replied, the one who plants the seeds is the human one. The field is the world and the seeds are the followers of the kingdom. But the weeds are the followers of the evil one. The enemy who planted them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the present age. The harvesters are the angels. Just as people gather weeds and burn them in the fire, so it will be at the end of the present age. The human one will send the angels and they will gather out of the world all those people and things that cause people to fall away. They will then be thrown into a burning furnace. People there will weep and grind their teeth. Then the righteous will flourish in God's kingdom. Those who have ears should hear the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Good morning, Park Ave. My name is Marthame Sanders. My pronoun preferences are he, him, his. And I want to begin with a framing of this conversation today with my friend Samer Anabtawi, beginning by talking about two of the past series that we've had here at Park Ave. One, uh, both of them were last year. Branching Out was last summer, which actually feeds very well off of our children's moment and the story of Old Turtle, because it's about looking beyond our narrow American Christian lens. And the second is one that we did last year during Native Peoples Month of November. We're gonna have another one this upcoming November. Uh, Last year was called Unearthed and it was about doing the work of decolonizing our faith. And so both of those are part of our uh, framing here today. As a 
content warning is a heads up. We are going to be speaking about the criminalization of homosexual conduct in Muslim majority countries. That will be part of what we end up talking about. So I want to make sure you are aware of that. Uh, we are also going to be talking about ways that the religious word in that context of our current sermon series can be weaponized as well as be a tool for liberation. So by way of introduction, uh, as I said, my name is Martha Ames Sanders. My family and I have been attending, and I now say attending in quotes because of our coronavirus attendance, Park Ave for almost three years, which is amazing to me. I am a Presbyterian pastor by background. That ministry has become a podcast most recently, and my podcast, AIJCast, is similar to what we're doing today, a conversation. Um, particularly with people who uh, come from parts of the world and, and places and identities that are unlike mine. And much like Old Turtle, that still feels like a really important thing to know. Um, and I began my ordained ministry when Elizabeth and I were relatively newly married in a Palestinian village in the northern West Bank called Zababdi, which is where we met Samer. So Samer, would you introduce yourself to folks? Sure. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. So uh, my name is Samarana Dawi. I am uh, Palestinian. I met Martha and Elizabeth back in a small town um, in the north of the West Bank, like Martha mentioned. Um, I was Elizabeth's English student in seventh grade. Um, a few years later, I ended up in the U.S. as an exchange student um, and then ended up landing a scholarship in college. I did my undergrad in a small town in Illinois. Um, and then moved on to the University of Chicago for my master's and ended up in DC for um, a political science PhD program uh, studying identity politics. And people are sort of like, you know, how did you end up with identity politics and all of um, this emphasis on identities and tensions between them and so forth. And I kind of was talking on the phone with Marthy um, last week about this and sort of go back to my early childhood living in the West Bank. I come from a family that has a diversity of faiths. Uh, the, my mother's side of the family comes from a, uh, well, they're Roman Catholic and my dad's side of the family is Muslim. And so growing up, um, I went to a Catholic school that had a lot of Muslim students and mm -hmm. I kind of encountered religion there. Um, for the first time and it was interesting because I was always kind of the outsider to whatever group there was um, on the question on the questions of religion the, the Muslim kids knew that I was half Muslim in their mind and so I was the happy I was the one who's kind of like well we don't really trust you kind of one of them and the Christian kids were also very clicky uh, and so they're like well but you're also one of them so I got pretty used to kind of thinking about how do you sit on the outside of whatever group you um, situate yourself in. Um, and then when you're talking about an Arab Palestinian living in a small town, Illinois, I was like the only Arab student on campus for a while and probably one of the few foreigners. Um, so I was always having to kind of navigate those questions of identity and where I situation myself and so forth. Um, and then I think the most pressing question for me as a Palestinian today is, as we pursue liberation and so forth, um, how do we do it in a way that's inclusive of everybody? That we cannot liberate ourselves as Palestinians from occupation, from domination of, of foreign will, if we can't liberate ourselves from things like homophobia and sexism. And, and that work has to be done by 
our own. And so my duty as a scholar and someone who's in academia is to kind of use my scholarship to advocate for changing discourses and narratives around um, stigmatized minorities and people whose rights are being denied um, on top of their rights being denied as Palestinians. So that's what I study and kind of put my research at this intersection of scholarship and activism, I'd say. And then uh, tell us about your focus of your research because you are looking right now at queer liberation movements in Muslim majority countries, which first of all, as a Western American Christian white guy, I'm sitting here and going, those exist, <laughs> right? The question of, of LGBTQ social movements? Uh, yeah, yeah. In and Muslim majority so, countries, yeah. Yeah, so my, my work is focusing on LGBTQ activism and, and queer politics in Arab states and also some Muslim majority societies because not every Muslim majority society is um, Arab inherently. Right. Um, but one thing that we know that, that we notice as people who study LGBTQ politics and, and just even laws um, is that at least 31 out of the 47 Muslim majority countries actually criminalize homosexual conduct one way or another, at least explicitly. And those that don't do it explicitly have some vaguely worded laws about decency and morality that right. are basically used to persecute LGBTQ folks. And so my research kind of begins with why do we see this deficit in queer rights in this particular region, mainly the, the Middle East, North Africa, and immediately, you know, existing scholarship or media coverage of, of, of the topic would locate that homophobic sentiment in Islam itself as a religion. Right. And so everybody glosses over the region and, sa the region and says, hey, this is an area that's like pr predominantly authoritarian, run um, by autocrats, there's a lot of Islamists. Um, so it's not the place to look if you're interested in LGBTQ social movements. But when I started doing the work, um, I realized that there are new um, rights movements that have emerged independently in a lot of these countries. I focus on Tunisia, Lebanon, and Palestine because they're kind of comparable in the timing and the nature of the movement that is uh, taking root. But most of these uh, countries have had a moment after the Arab Spring where activists were able to pry open some space within civil society for organizing for queer people and LGBTQ um, Arabs. So the spread of social media as well has facilitated kind of um, the so basically translation of activism models across borders and regions. And, and so we're seeing a lot of progress um, towards decriminalization in some places. We're seeing a lot of progress in terms of how these movements have actually uh, taken root within civil society and mm. trying to put pressure on their own states and kind of prevent the scapegoating of, of queer Arabs as some foreign conspiracy um, mm -hmm. against Islamic values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, you mentioned up front that there is this kind of glossing over of the region as predominantly Muslim and therefore why bother with queer liberation or human rights in general. And I think as you and I have talked, there there is an unopening for me of the role that Islam has played in the broader context. And you and I have talked a little bit about the parallels with, say, the 1990s in the United States and the role that Christianity played in uh, fairly repressive rules and, and laws about sexuality and sexual identity. So I would love to hear a little bit more about that nuance of Islam, um, both the places where it is used as an oppressive force, but also the places in which it um, has been uh, looked to as an opportunity as well for liberation. 
Right. Um, so for my purposes, right, like if you look as an outsider towards the Muslim majority societies, you look at Iran, you look, you know, you've seen uh, executions of queer people, you've seen um, images of ISIS uh, throwing queer folks off of buildings, and everybody gets the impression that that is predominantly the life, the everyday reality of, of, of queer Muslims anywhere. Um, and basically people are led to think that there are no bridgeable, um, there are no efforts to bridge Islam with inclusion and acceptance. Right. There's something inherently wrong about Islam that discourages exclusion. I'm not an Islamic scholar, but based on my research and what I know, um, Islam is not unique relative to other Abrahamic faiths. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just as ambivalent or ambiguous about you know, where it stands vis-a-vis -vis homosexuality. And the fact is the Quran, which is interpreted by Muslims as the word of God, um, and it's supreme to every other religious text, actually does not explicitly talk about same-sex relations, um, does not uh, condemn it. Um, it condemns, there are certain uh, parables and stories, just like the story of Lut and, and, and others, but they're, but they're not, I mean, it's, but there's no explicit mention of homosexuality or homosexual practice or identifying or any, anything as such. Um, and so in that sense, Islam is not unique in condemning homosexuality. Now in the Hadith, which are the, the quotes of the prophet that have been recorded way after his death right. and whose authenticity is often in question, there is actually punishment for homosexuality, but there is no consensus on what that punishment is. And even if there was one, Islam requires four credible witnesses to have witnessed the the deed that needs to be punished. And so really enforcement has been quite uneven. In fact, at times in Islamic history, quite rare. And it's something that LGBTQ activists today in the Arab world point to and say, look at Islamic history. It hasn't always been an era of, you know, it hasn't been centuries of oppression or even targeting of LGBTQ people or people who practice same sex um, or have uh, same sex relations. In fact, historians do tell us that gender norms in the Arab world prior to colonialism uh, were a lot more malleable than they are today. And they were in fact a lot more malleable than they were in the West. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when this, you look at the legacy of state formation and you really look at what the British and the French did in the 20th and the 19th century, they, they codified their own gender norms into mm -hmm. laws. And so the penal codes in the Arab world by and large all of these criminalization laws that we have today on the books, these are legacies of French and British laws. And so part of what we are doing um, in these circles as scholars and queer activists is to kind of go back to our own society's histories and also look within religion for some tools for liberation, for discourse that says, wait, Islam does not condemn this. Our history, Arab and Muslim history has not always condemned this. And what is the Western legacy of colonization yeah. and how did it factor into the stigmatization of LGBTQ folks and criminalizing um, just LGBTQ individuals, that begins a, a practice of liberation, I think, even on a discursive like narrative level. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing to me. That I, and this, again, was something in, in talking to you that was just kind of a, a mind opening and eye opening for me is and then I was reminded of Elizabeth and I got a chance to travel in Iran uh, quite a while ago and learned a lot about Iran and the current state of Iran 
is a situation where those in power are kind of like um, trying to prove themselves more Catholic than the Pope, as the phrase might go. Uh, it's more severe in their strict understanding of Islam than, uh, than the most strong Islamists. But that flies in the face of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of Islamic thought and practice in Iran, in Persia. And that Persian identity is a strong part of identity as well. You think about how there's uh, um, uh, no alcohol consumption within Islam or the representation of the human form in Islamic art. And yet those are things that happened in the midst of the Islamic flourishing in Iran. Hafez's just read some of Hafez's poetry that is, it's lascivious, it's sexualized, it's, uh, it's about uh, uh, drinking wine and being with uh, sexual partners you can't put that together with a strict Islamist identity. And yet Hafez, even in modern day Iran, is lauded and celebrated as this great poet. So it speaks to a much more nuanced tradition. And like you said, the role of colonialism, even more nuanced than it is in the West. Um, I was uh, talking to Darcy, Darcy the other day about how the influence of the Protestant Reformation on Eastern Christianity had a very similar role to what you're talking about, that the Protestant reformers were rebelling against the autocratic nature of Roman Catholics in Europe and went to the Eastern Orthodox Church to try and get theological and historical allies. But what they ended up doing was they ended up bringing that kind of Western regimented norm of identity and, and uh, delineation of theology to the East. So for the for example how many sacraments are there well catholics say there's seven protestants say there's two so the protestants went to the eastern orthodox and said how many are there and the eastern orthodox said well there are writings that say two there's writings that say 14 as long as you're in there we're good but the protestants said is it two or seven is it two or seven and they finally went it's seven get out of here and now the eastern orthodox church says there's seven sacraments so that influence of westernized christianity coming back to christianity in the place of its birth and turning it into something that it hadn't been is a big part of that story as well so i th this to me i appreciate your um bringing all of this into my awareness as a way of talking about the situation in the middle east and recognizing our complicity as those from the Western tradition, those uh, who have traditions in colonial cultures as part of this oppressive identity. Yeah, um, if may I um, add, um, yeah. one thing I say is this, these legacies of colonialism aren't just something of a legacy of the past. It's some, some, some Yeah, thank you. Growing. And uh, one thing that we have to kind of struggle with um, in queer activist circles in the Arab world right now is how do we make sure that the causes we are fighting for are not hijacked by other forces that are mm. colonial in nature? So for instance, um, meanwhile, so like, you know, we are in the, in our own spheres trying to kind of change the narrative about um, LGBTQ folks not being a fifth column, not being traitors, not being right. a Western conspiracy, not being kind of a Western imposition on our values, which is a narrative that, um, authoritarian elites and, and states conveniently deploy yeah. uh, to legitimize themselves in the eyes of, of their citizens, stoke fears against, you know, some, some insider threat. Um, but 
um, the, what's interesting here is, you know, while we're doing that kind of work to change this narrative, here comes Donald Trump and his administration who clearly do not care about queer folks. Um, and start launching these global efforts against distinction states that do not respect LGBTQ rights. And, you know, here we're sitting thinking, wow, so basically you're just trying to punish Iran for political reasons right. by trying to leverage questions of queer rights that are values the Europeans care about. So you want to get, get them on board. What does that do for us who are fighting on the inside for mm -hmm. queer rights? You know, you are just completely contributing to this decades-long uh, colonial narrative yeah. and yeah. you're just making our lives worse by claiming that now you are the champion of queer rights and carrying a rainbow flag upside down. Um, so, so that's the kind of added colonial reality we have to work with and the fact that there's something called pinkwashing, right, like the state of Israel mm -hmm. and others consistently point to the horrible record in the states around them um, and in, in a way to stoke fear against Islam in the West. Um, right. Because just all you got to do is show these photos of Iran or ISIS and just say, look what Islam does. Um, you know, Islam is a culture of hate. It's a religion of, of, of exclusion. And this religion gets weaponized in that sense here in the West. Um, yeah. Even queer rights become weaponized in that way against Muslims um, in the Muslim world. And, and they're used to legitimize the war in Iraq, legitimize um, sanctions against Iran. But the fact of the matter is we have to be cautious here that we don't contribute to these colonial practices of basically pointing to the suffering of queer folks um, in areas where homosexuality um, is forbidden. So, you know, in an, our attempt to help them or help that region, we can't just go and pour, you know, um, gasoline on the fire. Yeah. Islamists or yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. 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 I, I that is so helpful. It, it, I, I feel like I, I, I have to, and I want to anyway, but as a Presbyterian pastor uh, speaking in a Baptist church, I got to talk about Jesus uh, <laughs> and looking at the parable that we read, because it, it sheds some interesting um, wisdom on our conversation. First of all, it's that, that parable of the wheat and the weeds, which has nothing to do with sexuality and gender and identity. And yet it is the kind of text that can be weaponized it is a text that traditionally and traditionally in, in the structures that try to maintain kind of a status quo and hold on power looks for the right and wrong. What's the right and what's the wrong? What is the wheat and what are the weeds so that we can uphold the status quo? And even in that context, that parable is about letting it be and God will sort it out in the end. But then that becomes a justification for legal frameworks that try to stamp out the abnormal behavior, whatever that looks like. And if you put that in the context of sexuality, gender, and identity, the wheat is the cisgender, heterosexual, normative, two-parent, 2.4 children in a three-car garage uh, kind of family, and everything else is the, the weeds. The liberative way of looking at this, and this really just hit me in kind of digging into it this, this past couple of weeks, wheat is bread. Wheat is, exists for the baking of bread in terms of human existence. That's how we see it. And even if you're uh, gluten intolerant like me, you recognize that in scripture, Jesus talks about it as a staple of life. Bread always means something that gives life. Weeds are, and, and this was interesting, the weeds that we're talking about in that text, there's a particular strain of a weed that looks like wheat until it reaches maturity. It's called Darnell 
or zizanium. Um, by the way, there's a, a, this is, has nothing to do with anything, but there's a Quebecois rock band called Les Zizanium, which I was really interested in looking at and then figured out, oh, weed, they're a stoner rock band. So there you go. Has nothing to do with anything. So uh, th these weeds, they look like wheat until they're mature, at which point then they start to distinguish themselves. And here's the thing that is mind blowing to me in this parable. These weeds w didn't sprout up by accident. Someone planted them on purpose, waited until people were asleep and then planted fake wheat that they knew was gonna look like wheat until it was too late. Who does that, right? It was deliberate, it was systemic, it was deceptive, it was looking to destroy life. And all of those things to me speak directly to the category of evil. And yet when the, the landowners ask about what to do, they say, we're gonna do what we normally do. We'll wait till everything grows up and then we'll separate it out and then we'll burn it. It's not punishment. You don't punish weeds for trying to choke out wheat. It's preventing those weeds from trying to perpetuate the damage into future generations by destroying the seeds. And then those ashes, we just rewatched The Lion King as a family. It's circle of life stuff, right? It just goes back to the earth and it creates and generates life. So to me, what is more liberative than allowing people to celebrate the, their, their God-given identity and to live into that fullness. And so while we can look at other religions that are weaponized and liberative, I think we've got to take a hard look at our own and make sure that we are doing the hard work to make sure that what we are saying is, in the words of Jesus, that you may have life and have it abundantly. So there, there's my sermonette of our sermon. <laughs> so, uh, Samer, I would love to finish with this question. What is your wisdom for us? My wisdom is, um, it's, it's the word of advice maybe, or sort of kind of call to action, if, if I may ask, um, is that we also pay attention to our role, um, even well-intentioned people who are activists or want to help um, marginalized and excluded people, sometimes we end up falling in these uh, savior narratives that mm. are being politically, right? Like I said earlier, there are these nationalist approaches here in the West now that are weaponizing the oppression of queer Muslims against their own societies and against themselves. Um, and we have to be cautious not to fall into those state-sponsored narratives um, because they are Islamophobic. And maybe it is our job to one, learn about how Islam is different than other faiths when it comes to homosexuality. Um, and second is to start centering the voices of queer Muslims, at least here in the United States, who are organizing and are visible and kind of listen to what they have to say about how they use their own faith uh, for liberation, the way many Christians have turned away from the politics of the 80s and the 90s where religion was being weaponized as a right-wing tool. Right. And Muslims are doing the same thing now, queer Muslims to say, also our religion is similarly allowing and permissive for values of inclusion and respecting the sanctity of the body and the sanctity of the household and mm -hmm. preventing arrests and torture of queer people. So those are kinds of practices that are being used against the state. And, and maybe those are the kinds of voices that we need to be centering rather than maybe supporting um, state-sponsored agendas that claim to hide behind liberation to kind of carry out right-wing politics. Yeah. Samer, this is sacred time with you. I, I have always appreciated you from the time I first got to know you. And it is amazing to hear the work that you're doing. 
And I am just grateful, Ale Berek. May God bless you in the work that you do uh, for continuing to bring about the wisdom of liberation and possibility in the world. Shukran. Shukran. Thank you. I am very grateful to be able to actually share um, a couple of words with you and even share this just lovely morning with such an incredible and inclusive community. So I'm, that's, I'm honored. <laughs> Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to worship with us in person, our services are on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m.-ish. We are at 486 Park Ave in Southeast Atlanta, across the street from Grant Park, at the corner of Park Ave and Sydney Street. To find out more about us or get in touch, visit our website at parkavebaptist.com. Now go into a world that is too often unjust, knowing that the God that created you loves you and empowers you to love boldly, live inclusively, and serve creatively. Thank you.